My name is uh, Ian Hall. I'm the Acting Director of the Griffith Asia Institute here in Brisbane in Australia and welcome to this webinar, uh, Enhancing Maritime Security in the Indo-Pacific, that's being hosted by uh, La Trobe Asia in conjunction with Griffith Asia Institute. Um, look, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm speaking today, that's the Yagar and Turbal peoples. I'd like to pay respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Well, we're here to uh, to kind of celebrate, I suppose. We're here to, to launch a, a policy brief. Um, and that was the product of a series of workshops that we held in January and February of uh, 2022. Unfortunately, I don't have a hard copy to, uh, to hold up in front of you. So I'm just gonna share my screen briefly so that it'll give you an indication of uh, what the policy brief uh, looked like. So here it is, uh, the same title as the session that we've got today, Enhancing Maritime Security in the Indo-Pacific, um, and the product of uh, collaboration between Hilary Briffer and Lesio Patalano at uh, King's College London, uh, Beck Strani, of course, uh, Director of La Trobe Asia, and myself uh, at the Griffith Asia Institute. Um, so you can access this uh, policy brief online from the Griffith Asia Institute site and also from La Trobe Asia. Um, now that brief was the product of, uh, as I said, some workshops that we held earlier on in 2022 um, with support from the British High Commission in Canberra. And I'd like to thank uh, Diana and Kate, uh, who's on this, this, this uh, seminar this evening, um, as well as Jill uh, in GAI for their work that they did in putting together the workshops and also the brief. So the aim that we've got today is to answer three questions, three questions that we discuss in the brief uh, and that we're going to talk about uh, in a bit more detail today. First one is, uh, what are the central maritime security challenges in the region? Uh, that is the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the second one is, is how are regional states responding to that, to those challenges? And the third issue that we've got to discuss is what are the legal and institutional mechanisms that exist and perhaps should exist in the region to manage their disputes? Um, to explore these questions today, I'm really delighted to be uh, joined by um, three friends uh, and three participants in earlier dialogues. Um, so they are uh, Hong Lei Tu, who's uh, just now moved to Perth US Asia Centre, where she's the Principal Policy Fellow. Uh, Tara Davenport, who's the Deputy Director of the Asia Pacific Centre for Environmental Law at the National University of Singapore in Singapore. And Abhijit Singh, who's a Senior Fellow at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. So welcome to all three of you. Um, it's a pleasure to be uh, talking this evening to all three. So look, um, to explore these questions, as I said, we've got three questions to talk about. I'm going to pitch one question to each one of the speakers. Uh, and just on housekeeping, the speakers are going to speak on each one of these questions in turn. And then what I'm going to do is open up this session to Q&A. Uh, and you can answer those questions either through using the chat function uh, at the bottom of your screen or alternatively by, by putting up your hand or indicating uh, somehow or another that uh, you'd like to ask a question and I'll come to you and, uh, and, um, and ask you to, to pose your, your question. All right, so I'm gonna start with you, Abhijit, if I may, and I'm gonna throw you this first question. Um, so what are, in your view, the key maritime security challenges across the Indo-Pacific region today? Thank you, Ian. Thank you for that question. Uh, before I start, let me uh, congratulate the uh, Latro Griffith Asia Institute and King's College London for this excellent report. Uh, I'm assuming it's excellent. I've not gone through it, but I was certainly part of the workshops that were held back in January. And uh, I can say with great certainty that uh, 
these were very thought-provoking, very lively discussions. And I'm sure some of uh, the findings of those discussions have been uh, captured. The essence of those discussions has been captured in, in, in this report. Um, so I'm going to dive straight into the question that Ian posed. And in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, limit myself to three observations. Uh, uh, you know, there's for some time been this uh, understanding that the Indo-Pacific region is um, impacted by both traditional security challenges and non-traditional. The regular ones that stayed on state security, great power competition on the one hand, and uh, non-traditional security, which is more in the nature of human security challenges, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, uh, constabulary operations, et cetera. Um, and uh, the understanding that these are two different baskets of challenges uh, that don't mix very well. They have entirely different dynamics. As I said, one's about fighting a uniformed adversary. The other is about fighting the sea criminal or about providing human security. And that maritime forces must accordingly evolve different strategies to deal with these uh, different challenges. Uh, but what's happened over the past few years is that uh, there's been uh, what's, what's popularly now called as gray zone challenges. These are threats that lie in the nether zone. It's neither this nor that. It has dimensions of both. Uh, it, it's sort of a dual edge. And uh, what we're seeing is that in on the Pacific side, there are maritime militias on the Indian Ocean side. In the Western Indian Ocean, there's the rise of uh, maritime terrorism. But what I'd say is that something that has escaped notice is what's happening in the Eastern Indian Ocean, which is that uh, there are Chinese uh, uh, quasi-military ships in terms of research and survey vessels, in terms of intelligence vessels, even uh, I would say some fishing fleet that are, pardon me, uh, even some fishing fleet that are uh, actually uh, gathering intelligence in this region. And that means that uh, uh, the Indian Ocean is faced with a very different kind of uh, gray zone threat that really doesn't get talked about enough. The second issue that uh, must be pointed out is the growing salience of actually non-traditional security threats. This is where the real demand for security is coming in the region in terms of capacity building to deal with illegal fishing, uh, maritime pollution, climate change uh, challenges, uh, forced migration, et cetera. Uh, and uh, the trouble really that uh, nations and the navies are really facing is that the essential model of maritime security cooperation remains structured around traditional security. Uh, the, the threat of China, that's what is driving the real um, the cooperation in the region. And uh, the truth is that if we look at some of the maritime developments in the recent, uh, recent past, such as the Quad Malabar, uh, the, all the four quad countries uh, participating in the Malabar exercises. Over that matter, AUKUS, uh, again, that this is a, a move by the US, uh, UK, and, um, and Australia to, to share uh, you know, strategic technologies, particularly uh, submarine technology, or even the MDA, the, the Indo-Pacific MDA initiative that's been undertaken recently. They are all actually focused on the on the China, China challenge. And the other challenges that are lying in the non-traditional security domain, such as uh, overfishing or resources, resources management or pollution, all of these challenges are actually are really a footnote in that, in that 
essential narrative of maritime security cooperation. It's traditional security that is driving all the, all the cooperation. Now, I might just state here as, as an aside and take just one more minute because I know my time is running out that India has a complicated relationship with China. And uh, for a long time, there was this understanding that a military-centric approach is going to be enough to, to keep the Chinese at bay in the Indian Ocean region, but that has not worked out very well. There is a growing appreciation of the fact that the reach, that the countries in the region, what they, what they demand is more cooperation on non-traditional security issues, and therefore a more composite strategy is needed in the region. So I'm going to st stop by saying this, that for all the emphasis on the rules-based order, there is still uh, less clarity on what exactly will be the nature of cooperation that is needed to deal with both the Chinese threat, the threat of China in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, and on the other hand, also deal with non-traditional security challenges, because every country has a different way in which it defines these challenges. And going forward, I think it's going to be important to empathize with each other's needs, each other's understanding of maritime security and, and draw a, a sort of a balance between the need to counter the China challenge as also, also uh, take into consideration the different elements of security when it comes to non-traditional security challenges. And I'm going to stop here. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Abhijit. Um, characteristically incisive and, and direct. And, and that takes us also very helpfully to the second question, uh, which I'm going to throw to you, Huangli, too. Uh, so, look, um, how are regional states responding? Uh, how are they acting to defend this regional rules-based order or otherwise? Uh, and how are they acting, in other words, in response to these various different challenges that Abhijit uh, has outlined? Thank you, Ian, for those questions, and great to be with everyone. And I share um, Abhijit's uh, sentiments that uh, the previous workshop was re were really excellent. I'm pleased to be a part of this, this webinar as well, and good to see many familiar faces uh, in the audience as well, uh, familiar names in the audience as well. So before I answer um, Ian's question about regional response, then may I premise that I will be focusing mainly on Southeast Asia, just because that's my um, area of, of interest, but also just because I came back from two months there, so I have a little bit more of fresh perspective. Um, I think uh, I'll be just the division was very helpful. I will also frame it in two kind of way that one basket, you might call it old, ongoing and persistent challenges uh, to which the regional countries um, have some sort of existing framework, how to approach them. Not necessarily always working very efficiently, but those are the areas that um, the regional multilateral mechanism have been focusing on for a, a number of decades already. And those are traditional maritime disputes, fisheries, piracies, the well-known challenges and, and persisting ones that, that are long-term. Um, and we have um, ASEAN-centric architecture around them, where be then ASEAN Regional Forum, ADM and plus um, uh, being uh, ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus or ASEAN Mar uh, Maritime Forum uh, and so on. The other basket is so-called so more uh, new and more um, kind of emerging threats, but they equally can be ongoing and persistent as well. Um, and not necessarily we have all the um, existing framework 
to address them already because they are new um, and because of the inherent limits of, of those multilateral framework that tend to be slow, tend to be inclusive, but also very, very big and so very um, have limits in the in the uh, effectiveness. Um, and those new challenges uh, are often requiring much more timely approach um, and much more targeted or tailored approaches, be them, for example, cyber-enabled threats or uh, supply chain of critical goods, just as oil, gas, food, and, and um, other things that we are experiencing right now. But I would also say that they are intertwined. They're not completely separate. Uh, we also see one reinforcing another in terms of, um, of mounting challenges. And oftentimes there's no one challenge that countries need to um, respond, respond to, but uh, many at the same time. So in terms of responses that uh, Ian asked me, uh, I think there are a range of responses and there's no one solution that is prevalent across the region to those many challenges and not even a clear leading preferences, I would say. Except maybe, you know, there is a very much fashionable and um, talk about minilateralism propelled by Quad and AUKUS and uh, more or less in big announcements such as submarine announcements with AUKUS or uh, plans or even imaginary plans about potential joint patrol on the quad or other coordinated deployment of tech equipment like satellite that may assist monitoring of the maritime domain and whatnot. And so there is a lot of um, enthusiasm about those new minilateral framework that are uh, more exclusive in nature, um, allegedly more effective because of that and more tailored and, and in a way are selective of the members that have more or less um, you know, coordinatable uh, uh, capacities or have more similar views to the threat. When it comes to the bigger region and even in Southeast Asia, because the recognition of threats is so uh, different from country to country, it's very hard to coordinate. And it's even harder because of the different capabilities um, and uh, resources. So, but, so the fact that countries recognize different um, uh, threats, different uh, level of severity and urgency make it very um, make it challenging to, um, to make the multilateralism work. So for now, I, my own assessment is that multilateralism become a habit, a diplomatic practice, a space for deliberating, uh, rather than really a space for actionable plans. So there are a lot of threat and challenges are being responded individually. Um, and I think the effect of um, the war in Ukraine, as well as China's continuous zero COVID policy causing disruption and backlogs in supply chain of critical goods such as oil, gas, and, and make, causing food prices soar, Medicaid, um, many countries in the region make food security and other so-called non-traditional security main preoccupation right now. And, and you have uh, countries including Indonesia that even go to the extent of saying, let's not discuss about China. We don't wanna talk about those um, you know, well-known threats anymore. Uh, and they prefer, a lot of countries prefer to play down those uh, security challenges, uh, including China's provocations, uh, be them in uh, all the 
increased activities of in the maritime militia, for example. And, and that plays to the Beijing's tactics that it targets often individual countries rather than collective, that sort of prevents so a coordinated or collective response. And um, that is also an effect of China's, uh, that China's assertiveness in the uh, South China Sea in particular have become so-called old news. So nobody is being outraged anymore. It's in, a, in to a degree normalized even, it's not making as much news anymore and effectively disarming the public response. So, and, and that's what China wanted. Uh, it is not, happening all the time and across, of, of course, different countries, Vietnam being very still strong on that, but I think it is uh, losing the headline space that it used to have, right? And the Ukraine war, I think, brought a lot of anxiety too, so there's a political factor there, that the risk, uh, and the countries in the region realize that the risk of war is no longer an imagine, imaginary, and geopolitical tensions are very tangible. So there's a little bit of also desire to lower the temperature in the region and then not um, playing up too much uh, uh, into the risk of further escalation, at least uh, diplomatically. I think um, the political factor will still be there one way or another. But for example, one of the, the late news, latest news was that the US has withdrawn from the uh, ASEAN Defense Minister's meeting on counterterrorism, which is not necessarily, you know, um, something particular uh, sensitive, but that was because uh, it was chaired by Myanmar and it was happening in, in Moscow. So the challenge to the ASEAN style of multilateralism will be there and be a political one. And to what degree we will have a broader regional multilateral responses or coordination in the Indo-Pacific is going to be um, really much on political factor. And equally, you know, individual countries as well, you, you see that in the Philippines with the change of leadership. So it will be up to the Marcos Jr. administration, for example, how they go about the arbitral tribunal ruling from 2016. And that will of course have impact on the whole region and that would be predetermined collective approach to the regional dispute management, for example. So um, what I'm trying to say here is that we have uh, a plethora of challenges and uh, different options of responses, but um, I, I would uh, underline, highlight the political factor be behind it because that they will determine um, the, the choices, the preferences at the end of the day, um, where resources and, and commitment are being put uh, in, in most in most cases. I think my time is up, so yield the microphone to Tara. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is an absolutely impossible task to uh, ask you to cover the a, a huge region, uh, and it's so many varied responses to what is happening in quick. Uh, time as well. Um, but thank you so much. And to do all of that in less than 10 minutes is just is absolutely impossible, as I suggest. Um, but Tara, I, I'm going to kind of do this, do a similar thing to you as well. Um, in terms of the, the regional mechanisms that we have for dispute resolution, um, can you give us a sense of, of what they are, of what's lacking, uh, of what might be, uh, and so on? So Tara Davenport, it's over to you. And then after that, we're going to have questions uh, and uh, you can ask your questions uh, at, at the bottom of the screen. There's a 
a question and answer box there and I will uh, read those questions out. So Tara, over to you. Thank you very much, Ian. Can you hear me? Yes, okay, great. Um, again, I must echo the thanks of Abhijit and Huang. Uh, delighted to be here and delighted to have participated in the earlier seminars, which were very lively. Um, I am talking about the legal mechanisms that exist to uh, manage or resolve ongoing disputes. Um, and I would like to start off by saying that from international law perspective, there is no widespread consensus on what is meant by maritime security. And indeed, the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, there are very few references to maritime security. And of course, because of this, scholars, policymakers, and government officials have tended to identify existing or future threats to maritime security and what needs to be taken to address such threats. And I think Huang and Abhijit have basically addressed that very well. Um, for this region, uh, and again, both have been, uh, this has been addressed in, by the previous speakers, there exist several maritime security threats from a variety of sources, but um, because of my own individual interest, uh, I wanted to focus on the interstate dimension of maritime security concerning sovereignty disputes and overlapping maritime claims and the potential legal mechanisms that, that can be used to resolve or manage such disputes. Um, as we all know, Southeast Asia has a very complex maritime geography, and nearly all Southeast Asian waters are enclosed as territorial seas, EEZs, or archipelagic waters. Uh, there is a complex coastal configuration complicated with gulfs that penetrate deeply, and there are a multitude of large and small islands, some of which are subject to sovereignty disputes. While the territorial sovereignty disputes uh, over the Spratly and the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea um, and the uh, sort of consequent disputes over maritime entitlement um, are, I would say, a primary source of tension in the Southeast Asian region. Again, I'm also only focusing on Southeast Asia. Um, it is not the only area of uncertainty or potential conflict. There are other maritime areas which have not been delimited for various reasons and can also be a source of escalating tensions between states in the region. These unresolved maritime entitlement issues have implications for maritime security because of course activities by other states in these undelimited areas can strain relations, but also pose an impediment to cooperation on maritime security threats posed by non-state actors, including piracy, terrorism, and uh, maritime transnational organized crime. Uh, I will focus very briefly, uh, hopefully, on three legal mechanisms, uh, which are by no means exhaustive. Uh, number one, third party binding dispute settlement, Number two, third-party non-binding dispute settlement. And lastly, international agreements, which can be either binding or non-binding. Uh, with regards to third-party uh, dispute settlement, right, as I'm sure the audience is familiar with, sovereignty disputes can only be resol resolved by international courts and tribunals if states agree to submit to such disputes to international courts and tribunals. And while we have had examples of such sovereignty disputes being submitted, and complied with in the region, uh, such as the Singapore-Malaysia dispute over Petrobranca and Little Rocks, and the Indonesia-Malaysia dispute over Ligatan and Sipadan, I do not see such a complex sovereignty dispute over the South China Sea features being submitted by agreement to an international court or tribunal anytime in the immediate future. Uh, of course, it's a very complex dispute, uh, arose over, you know, who knows when the dispute crystallized. Um, and again, it makes bilateral dispute settlement challenging uh, leaving such sovereignty issues, um, and this is compounded by the fact that leaving such sovereignty issues uh, to international courts and tribunals 
which have been elevated to symbols of national identity uh, with a focus on binary outcomes, it's a very unattractive solution. Um, UNCLOS, of course, has established a robust compulsory dispute settlement system over any dispute relating to the interpretation or application of UNCLOS. UNCLOS courts and tribunals will not decide sovereignty disputes in principle, but disputes relating to maritime entitlement, maritime delimitation, and activities in contested areas could be subject to UNCLOS compulsory dispute settlement, provided that none of the compulsory or optional exceptions apply. In particular, Article 298 uh, allows states to opt out of disputes relating to maritime boundary delimitation, as well as military activities. In the Southeast Asian region, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand um, have excluded disputes falling under Article 298 from compulsory dispute settlement. And in the East Asian region, both China and Korea have. Uh, this may limit the utility of unclosed dispute settlement mechanisms, of course, subject to the caveat, if you have very good international lawyers who are able to frame the issue in a way in which the International Court of Tribunal will accept jurisdiction. I have five minutes left. I will, I will go on. Um, I have to speak briefly, of course, about the South China Sea arbitration brought by the Philippines against China, uh, which China did not participate in. This has often been used as an example of the inherent deficiencies of international law and third party dispute settlement. But uh, as I've argued elsewhere and uh, even in um, the previous seminar, uh, the value of adversarial dispute settlement goes beyond compliance and includes clarifying legal issues, serving as a process for disputing states to clarify and examine their own claims and articulate them in a legal manner. And of course, um, decisions of international courts and tribunals have also been used as focal points and leveraged by other actors. I will now briefly go on to third-party non-binding dispute settlement. Um, and when I refer to third-party non-binding dispute settlement, I'm referring to processes which involve mediators or conciliators, whereby the report by the mediator or conciliator um, uh, is basically an attempt to impartially examine disputes um, and an attempt to define terms of settlement that may be accepted by parties. But again, this is a non-binary outcome. Parties are free to reject the report. Uh, the Australia Timor-Leste conciliation, which was unilaterally brought by Timor-Leste against Australia, is off under UNCLOS, is often touted as a successful example of conciliation, as the conciliators were highly skilled and able to really understand the interests and needs of the parties and come up with an agreement that was acceptable to both. Um, the prospect of compulsory conciliation under UNCLOS uh, being used to resolve some of the uh, disputes in Southeast Asia may be limited because of the specific requirements in the Law of the Sea Convention. But of course, voluntary concili conciliation, whereby both parties agree to conciliation, uh, still remains a useful dispute settlement mechanism. Lastly, I want to briefly talk about um, international agreements. Right. Of course, these are international. I mean, they are international conven conventions or treaties. Um, and I wanted to really highlight the active boundary diplomacy that has taken place in Southeast Asia um, between uh, 1969 and 2019. There were 32 delimitation agreements where boundary was agreed upon, and 12 provisional arrangements, uh, which were sort of agreed upon pending a boundary uh, agreement, and these include joint development arrangements, joint seismic arrangements, and conflict management agreements. Some of them are not in force at the moment, and not all of them met with uh, equal degrees of success, but that is an option that remains, particularly for states which are not ready to resolve maritime delimitation. And of course, both maritime delimitation agreements 
and provisional arrangements require extensive negotiations, uh, a political will, a lot of consensus between parties, and there are also inherent difficulties with that. Um, and maritime limitation agreements in particular are predicated on sovereignty disputes being decided. Uh, lastly, I wanted to talk about non-binding agreements. Um, and again, there are some non-binding arrangements uh, which also exist to manage tensions. These include the ASEAN-China Declaration on the Code of Conduct. Right now, there are current negotiations on the Code of Conduct. Um, there is a Code for Unplanned Encounters at Sea and the China-US uh, Memorandums of Understanding. And of course, again, with varying degrees of success and much emphasis has been placed on the non-binding nature of these instruments and that they are not really legal instruments or law per se, although I would sort of beg to disagree. Um, and I would also say that these instruments also have a very useful role to play, particularly in these auxiliary issues that arise from maritime entitlement uh, disputes, right? Um, you know, they serve, I'm preaching to the choir here, they serve as confidence building measures, right, which uh, reduce uncertainties and build confidence. And I think also I'm very interested in processes. The processes in negotiating such instruments are also very important. Um, officials meet, they're able to communicate their national positions, and they may sometimes, uh, depending on the situation at hand, serve as benchmarks for acceptable behavior and ultimately found, form a way of nudging states into um, complying with the rule of law. So I think I'll end there uh, by saying that there are, of course, legal mechanisms, an array of legal mechanisms available to enhance maritime security. Um, but uh, I would say that not all maritime security issues are amenable to legal solutions and that we should not view the law as a panacea to the problems that um, the region is facing. Thank you. Tara, thank you so much. It's been fantastic in having you involved uh, this evening, but also so more broadly in, in the project. And I think um, all three of the speakers today have given an indication of the kind of the flavor of the, uh, the, the, the sessions that we had earlier on in the year, which brought together experts in security, uh, as well as political and diplomatic specialists, and of course, um, international lawyers uh, into, the, into the broad discussion and, and really enriched that discussion as we went along through those four sessions. Um, and we hope uh, to have done all of that justice in the report that we've uh, published um, just uh, recently. So look, we've got um, time now for some, some questions and some comment and so on from the audience. What I'd like to invite you to do is to uh, type up your question in the Q&A box, which is at the bottom of the screen. If you just click on that, you can open it up and ask the question. Um, so I'm going to address those questions uh, one by one, if I may. Um, the first question is a specific one, but it, it goes to uh, what um, Huang was talking about, about Southeast Asian states and how they are sitting in terms of not just their perceptions of, of China which is uh, and the United States, which are, you mentioned in your comments, but also of some of these new uh, mechanisms that have emerged in the last few years, specifically the Quad. Uh, and so there's a question there from uh, Lin Ha about the Southeast Asian perceptions of the Quad. Uh, and asking specifically about, about Vietnam, but in your response, um, I'd invite you to kind of to speak more broadly than that. Um, and the question also references some research that you did, Huang, a few years ago, so in 2018. I know there's been some more recent surveys done. I know William Chong and others have published some more recent surveys of Southeast Asian opinion. Um, but I'm going to pitch that question to you now. So Southeast Asian perceptions of the Quad and uh, minilateralism more broadly, uh, Huang. 
Thank you, uh, Ian, and thank you for Ling uh, for the question. Yes, I think that's one of the, the most quoted and probably most comprehensive to date study on requiring and self-decision perceptions. I'm glad it's after four years, it's still making around and uh, recently also there have been um, references to it. I think it's high time for me to do another round of more updated research, given that the quad has also evolved since then. But to answer um, Link's question, yes, I think um, it's not surprising at all that Vietnam, um, in, in the study you referenced, uh, that I authored, uh, was so enthusiastic about um, the quad. And equally, Philippines were quite enthusiastic. Of course, depending what you mean by interest, right, the government's interest. As you know, um, the Vietnamese government is not very vocal in many um, issues, including the Quad or AUKUS or other regional issues, and doesn't make much of commentary or um, public statement that rather than very neutral and minimal ones. So you wouldn't see from official statements the interest. And if you by interest, you mean an interest of joining, then of course that wouldn't be the case. But in Vietnam did um, attend a number of quite plus meetings. So it was quite active in that space. Um, and uh, of course, you know, there are always hopes for, um, Probably now is, is different and moderated, but when it resurfaced, when the Quad resurfaced, Quad 2.0, I would say, um, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of anticipation of what it would do in a space of traditional security, for example, of, um, you know, uh, rules-based rule order, what role it will do, will have because of the rhetoric around it. And also its role in, um, law uh, binding uh, issues because other regional mechanisms including ASEAN and including um, that Tara mentioned DOC or COC or ongoing the negotiations with COC have been um, not really effective so uh, a mechanism that could bring more um, enforcing mechanisms that uh, an, an initiative like Quad brought a lot of um, hopes um, and another, I think, point uh, to this study is that it was an anonymous survey. It was a combination of inter interviews and surveys. So people were more inclined to express their own view rather than quotable official statements. So that's why you might see the difference. Thank you. Um, look, can I maybe just also ask Tara this question and just slightly reframe this uh, a little bit? Um, from the perspective of where you're sitting in Singapore, uh, Singapore has been involved as well in some of these kind of plus initiatives and obviously has has uh, close and rather interesting relationships with the various major powers in the relation in, in the region as well. Um, do you think that these that these this trend towards minilateralism is going is helpful in terms of moving us towards dispute resolution or not? I know that's a really difficult question to pitch to you, Tara, but I'm going to pitch that to you right now. <laughs> um, hmm, it's a very interesting question. Um, towards dispute resolution, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I will give the lawyer's answer, uh, which is uh, I'm depends on the circumstances. But um, I, I think that there is um, a general. Of, uh, I mean, you know, it sounds so trite to say, you know, the ASEAN way. There's a general um, aversion to sort of binding dispute settlement mechanisms. I'm not sure 
uh, as you, you, you know, the minilateralism is sort of going to nudge us in that direction. Um, I think that there, uh, there is, I mean, you know, Huang talked about sort of the, the ineffectiveness or the perception of ineffectiveness of the DOC and the COC. Um, but I, I sort of still maintain uh, that these are really important processes, um, you know, and, uh, you know, ASEAN still, I believe, uh, may, well, I guess my, my optimism is being eroded steadily, but I still believe that it remains um, a, a viable platform for discussions between um, the ASEAN states and uh, the ASEAN Cayman states and China. But I think it's also important to remember that you know, um, the uh, South China Sea disputes are only, um, uh, you know, not all ASEAN member states are involved. Uh, this idea of uh, uh, consensus sort of always sort of hinders um, uh, a common position on the South China Sea uh, being agreed upon by ASEAN. Um, so it has its inherent limitations, but also plays um, a useful role. I feel like I'm, I'm like the sort of naive eternal optimist um, in this uh, uh, discussion. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I would say um, I don't think, I think that it is going to, well, I might have to eat my hat, but I think it might be unlikely that we actually see third party binding dispute resolution, particularly in relation to the South China Sea disputes. I think the appetite for that has sort of um, uh, died out a bit. Um, and, and again, in many ways, the, uh, there's a sort of perception that the legal issues have been uh, resolved by the South China Sea uh, Tribunal. Um, so we have to sort of explore other ways now uh, to, to resolve and manage these disputes. Brilliant, thank you. Can I just uh, add a bit to... Yes, of course, Arjun. Thanks. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm actually compelled by what uh, Tara and Wong have both pointed out. But let me just say this with regard to, you know, uh, uh, organizations like the ADMM Place and Plus and to a degree, the Quad Walls. Look, the thing is, the fact is that the ADMM Plus actually has a organization structured around um, non-controversial, um, you know, uh, non-traditional challenges. Uh, and so when it comes to issues like, and these challenges, by the way, you know, non-traditional challenges are tactical challenges. They, they, they are in the moment. So whether it's anti-piracy or it's armed robbery, or for that matter, uh, you know, IUU fishing, which is illegal, unreported uh, fishing uh, in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean. These are um, uncontroversial un because uh, most participants in that organization would, uh, would agree that uh, there is a problem in these areas and that we need to work together. But this does not produce any long lasting synergy. So when it comes to disputes, as Tara was pointing out, you know, territorial disputes, they remain in their place. No country shifts its positions. And I would be very surprised if the, Chi if the Chinese would feel any pressure from an organization like the ADMM Plus. So for that matter, even if the Chinese were cooperating in a certain initiative, that would not be, that cooperation does not point to a change of heart. On the in the traditional realm, so they would uh, they would continue to uh, hold their positions. And in fact, in the case of Taiwan, it, as we have seen, there was a recent uh, statement by a Chinese official to say that uh, the Taiwan Strait is basically a Chinese, uh, you know, it's 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 Chinese internal waters. This is uh, this is this is this is China's territorial waters. So they are not in any way tamping down on. Uh, on their claims. And it would be foolhardy to believe that what we do in terms of non-traditional security will somehow, uh, you know, indicate to China that we are willing to push them uh, to, to, to accept uh, uh, mm, 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 our version 
of uh, of what the South China Sea should look like, and and a South China Sea that is free of Chinese coercion and 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 Chinese aggression. Uh, that is the big conundrum that we face, and this is holds true also with regard to the Quad, wherein the kind of cooperation we are doing is essentially tactical cooperation. Yes, we have better interoperability. Yes, we have better habits of cooperation. We are doing many more exercises, but I say until we don't have integrated operations of the kind that happens in the CMF. Uh, combined uh, combined maritime forces, the, the CTF-151, the 152, where you do sustained operations together, you're using similar equipment, you have similar protocols, similar norms, you cannot develop that kind of interoperability that will help you in deterring uh, an adversary. And if China is that adversary, then I'm afraid this kind of cooperation that is more in rhetorical and more that happens, you know, uh, periodically uh, uh, and, and, and episodically, is not going to be enough to, to push back China. That is the problem that we face, that we make so much of uh, hype about our cooperation, but really in, 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 in material terms, we are nowhere uh, close to pushing, uh, pushing back against the Chinese uh, assertion and activity in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean region. Thanks. Thanks so much, Abhijit. I've got another question here for you. So I'm going to come back to you and then I'm going to come back to the other members of the panel. So this is really a question about China's behavior uh, and particularly um, China's use of uh, gray, gray zone approaches in order to get what it wants in a variety of spaces, whether that's the East China Sea or indeed whether that's along the line of actual control or, uh, or in the South China Sea. So. Um, the question is a quite specific one. Why is China using uh, approaches that are normally more characteristic of weaker states in these contexts? What does it hope to gain and why is it selecting these strategies? Well, China's strategy is a really smart one. And, and I tell you why. Uh, if you were to use military forces, uh, uh, then, then a nation really is creating the rationale for the opponents to use the military back in turn. What the Chinese are really doing is that they're using instruments that are very hard to classify as military. Uh, there is this large sense that they are meant to, in some ways, undermine Chinese adversaries or presumed adversaries. But you can never put your finger on whether these are really uh, military instruments or not. And when the Chinese are used, used military maritime militias, for example, in the in the South China Sea, um, Beijing always has uh, you know plausible deniability to say that well, what happened in those waters was just a tactical response. Uh, the ship, the fishing boat felt threatened by your coast guard ship, and therefore it went and rammed that ship. This is not uh, this is not uh, as if uh, this was commandeered by a. Uh, uh, by a Chinese, you know, Coast Guard officer, or or this had this was taking orders from the Chinese military. This is simply a reaction to what was happening in those waters. So, so as a result of this, uh, China takes away the rationale for another state to use force in return, um, and this is a very smart move uh, because it keeps the Chinese military and it keeps the Chinese Coast Guard out of the scene of action, and it allows other instruments to apply force or, or uh, to, to push back uh, presumed opponents. Um, I might point out the Chinese are trying similar tactics in the Indian Ocean region, as I pointed out in my initial comments, 
the Chinese uh, Coast Guard, uh, the, uh, not just Coast Guard, but the survey vessels, the research vessels, their mining ships, intelligence ships are all in India's EEZs, as, as for that matter, in the EEZs of other countries to send a signal to, to India and other countries in the region that Chinese presence in these waters is part of the course and that it should be accepted because all big powers have interests in you know, far-flung uh, flung out uh, zones, uh, maritime zones, and uh, it, it's it's not extraordinary for Chinese to have uh, for for China to have presence in these waters. And so again, it shifts the needle, you know, a very uh, 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 quietly and surreptitiously, uh, it shifts the balance of power uh, in 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 China's direction. So I would think this is a very smart strategy, and we need an equally calibrated and uh, and and nuanced strategy to counter China. Uh, when it uses uh, uh, maritime militias and, and, and gray zone instruments. Thank you, Abhijit. That's a, um, a very uh, clear analysis of, of the problem, I think, and, and a very also a very um, sort of convincing piece of analysis as far as I'm concerned as to uh, what China is up to and why. Um, we've got a question here, and I might come back to you, Huang, and, and then to you, Tara about ASEAN centrality, this phrase that we hear all the time. Uh, it's one of those phrases uh, in Southeast Asia, which um, which means slightly different things, I think, to, to different people in different countries uh, across the region. But uh, it's also something which has been repeatedly affirmed by statements that are made by the Quad grouping and also by you know individual uh, diplomats and leaders from the major powers uh, in the region as well. So to you, Huang, what does ASEAN centrality mean today uh, and what is its future uh, as we look to a whole range of other mechanisms for managing some of the problems that we've got in the region? Impossible question to answer, Ian, um, but let me just quickly add on the um, maritime militia before I go to that one. Is that, yes, exactly that deniability because uh, China can or still claim good neighborhood policy, be in uh, talks uh, about the, the code of conduct with the neighbors and claim good relationship with the region. The moment it uses its official PLA uh, Navy, it will you know, be a, become aggressor, right? Um, but with the maritime militia and, and tactics, if you talk to people um, in the maritime domain, uh, where the Coast Guard and others in the region, and they will tell you the tactics deployed are really very sophisticated and, and oftentimes you don't, you know, they're disguised as fishermen, they're disguised as with Vietnamese flag, Filipino flag, Indonesian flag. So that is gives a room for deniability uh, there and cause even bigger stir among um, countries because it will confuse everyone at the same time. Uh, to, uh, the question about uh, ASEAN centrality. I think uh, ASEAN centrality is becoming a mantra, but something that for a number of decades now, I think countries have not clearly defined or figured out uh, for themselves. It, it means different things at different point of time. Recently, in the context of um, unilateralism emerging like Quad or AUKUS or others, uh, it rather points to the challenge of ASEAN centrality. Not that we were ever on the same page about ASEAN centrality within ASEAN itself, 
Um, and not that, you know, ASEAN countries uh, are not familiar with multilateralism themselves. There are a number of, uh, we have to make that distinction that it's not just, you know, new multilateralism like Quad that is challenging multilateralism like ASEAN. Minilateralism and multilateralism coexisted for a long time and they were fine. Um, and a lot of countries, member states of ASEAN, um, have been and are members of other minilaterals. So there's no inherent problem there. It's a question of other emerging regional um, focal points, if not architecture, that um, for some would challenge that ASEAN centrality or ASEAN being at the central of all regional architecture. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, I think, um, you know, there was a time that ASEAN did show more of initiatives um, and activism in terms of regional diplomacy. Now we see whether AUKUS or Quad or other trilaterals in the region across Indo-Pacific, meaning ASEAN is not the only game um, anymore. Um, and there, there are other maybe competing, but not necessarily competing because they have a different function um, as well. So I think for ASEAN needs to work out the relationship with, with the new initiatives, whether it likes it or not. And it needs to be relevant, by um, not by the virtue of absence of other institutions, right? That's a wrong assumption. And ASEAN centrality is not guaranteed by absence of quad or AUKUS or anything else. If ASEAN can assert a centrality, it should be uh, able to assert despite of proliferating new initiatives. And I think what we are seeing now is that ch uh, challenge being perceived externally, but uh, it's also pointing to the internal weakness of ASEAN and perhaps um, the crisis of confidence within ASEAN itself. So, you know, I'm a, an ASEAN observer for a long time and I've been supportive for ASEAN a long time too, but I, I do recognize that there is um, this internal crisis of confidence within and with, without that being resolved, I think whether Quad or any other initiative will always be seen as something that challenges ASEAN centrality. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm going to, to throw this one to Tara. I'm gonna note as well, we've got 10 minutes left. If anybody's got any further questions, please do type them up in the Q&A. If the question doesn't, doesn't come forward, I'm gonna ask the panel one final one about China and especially about the, the leadership issues in China and what that might might uh, lead to uh, post-2023 uh, and, the, and the leadership transition that's coming up. So um, uh, Tara, can I ask you just to comment on the centrality question? Abhijit, do feel free to jump in if you like on that issue uh, and then we might round up with just one more question uh, before we finish uh, at 8 p.m. Uh, Brisbane time. So Tara, ASEAN centrality. Sorry, ASEAN centrality. Um, can I be <laughs> um, really intellectually lazy and say that I completely agree with Huang and what she said? Um, and I think her comments are really spot on. Um, and I think that perhaps we expect too much of ASEAN. Um, and I think, I mean, relating to the question of the Quad and ASEAN, I think they're very different beings. 
that they're very diff they serve very different functions. And I've noticed with ASEAN that there is um, uh, on sort of these low hanging fruits, you know, sort of like trade, economy, and uh, um, uh, I mean, even in the protection of the marine environment, there's actually been a lot of work done. And, um, you know, they, they may be statements, you know, you can say that they're useless, but you know, there's still the programs of action. They sent they set out like a, a course of action for ASEAN member states. And I still I think that um ASEAN still definitely has a valuable role to play in regionalism and enhancing regionalism, maybe not so much in sort of the uh more sensitive issues um uh, relating to maritime security and the uh, South China Sea disputes. Um, but uh, ASEAN centrality in other issues, I would say, is 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 still um, uh, arguably there. Um, but uh, I agree with Huang and exactly what she said about um, they are going through an internal sort of a crisis of confidence on, um, uh, you know, being challenged by these uh, various uh, minilateral um, initiatives. But again, I mean, what do we really want ASEAN to be, right? What do we, uh, uh, are we expecting too much of it, right? It's, um, uh, it's a regional organization um, and in which uh, they issue a lot of uh, declarations and statements. And it's really a way uh, to enhance cooperation between ASEAN member states, right? And I think that if we sort of reframe uh, what we hope ASEAN to be, then perhaps you won't be so disappointed by it. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. Um, okay, I don't have any other questions from the audience, so I'm going to ask one really difficult one. Um, we're going up to a party congress in China. We could be looking at, a, and we probably are looking at, a third term for, for Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping's period in power has been marked by a, a shift to a much more assertive uh, posture uh, across the region from China. And of course, it's also been accompanied by an astonishing rate of growth in the Chinese Navy, Chinese Coast Guard, uh, as well as the maritime militias and the fishing fleets and so on and so forth. So just in a minute each, please. Uh, what would a third term for Xi Jinping mean then for maritime security across the region, if it's even possible to answer that question? Abhijit, I'm going to be mean and go to you first. Yeah, well, uh, I'd say that uh, uh, a third term for President Xi Jinping would mean that, uh, essentially mean that the status quo in the South China Sea, and I would say across the Indo-Pacific region, would uh, sustain uh, for another few years. Uh, I think under Xi Jinping, whatever his domestic policies may have been, and uh, uh, this is a question that uh, that only the the analysts that look at China's uh, uh, internal politics will really be able to answer whether that's been good for China or not. I per personally think that uh, uh, this is uh, that the, that the issue is controversial. There's a few things that he's done that's not quite been in the interest of the Chinese people. But as far as maritime security is concerned, I think China has a better sense of what uh, its position is in in the region and in the world. And if you look at the militarization of uh, uh, of of uh, the Chinese Navy as well as the Chinese Coast Guard in terms of the assets that they're, that they are now getting, uh, and I'm talking not just destroys and frigates, uh, and uh, for that matter even the aircraft carrier, but also you know high tech submarines. Uh, the fact that the Chinese now have a sort of a space program, they have they're much more and much more secure when it comes to using cyber uh, cyber technologies. So China knows that it is a power to reckon with. And I think, and I think, uh, sort of uh, pushing China back 
uh, in the Indo-Pacific space, especially in the South China Sea, is going to take quite some doing. Uh, no, I, I'm not surprised that the uh, Americans are now talking about uh, militarizing the South China Sea in their own way. They're talking about gunboat diplomacy that's going to happen because they realize that uh, convincing China to go with the, these, uh, the legal mechanisms, et cetera, unclos, is, is not going to work in the long run. This is going to be a much more contested dynamic going forward if Xi Jinping were to continue. So for maritime security, this is not good news. But in the Indian Ocean, might I just point out, I'll just take half a minute, there's going to be a very different game playing out. And that's because we've got to realize that, the, that China under Xi Jinping has two different strategies for the Indo and for the Pacific. For the Pacific, it is much more contested. It's, it's full spectrum dominance of the Western Pacific and the South China Sea. In the Eastern Indian Ocean, and in the Indian Ocean at large, it's more about uh, 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 stakeholdership uh, and incremental stakeholdership. The Chinese are going to be bigger stakeholders. They're going to project themselves as developmental partners, security providers. And there it's going to be hard for India again to counter China because if the Chinese are going to come in saying that they're going to uh, you know, provide the security goods and provide the developmental goods, how can India make the case that uh, that this presence is bad for the region and that the Chinese should be kept out. So the challenges that the Indo side is going to face in President Xi Jinping's third term, I, I'm uh, quite certain are going to be very different from the challenges that the Pacific, are going to, uh, Pacific is going to face. But if India has to uh, uh, develop, as I said, a composite strategy to counter China, we're going to have to take some of the uh, issues of, uh, of, of regional uh, countries in the Pacific into consideration in the, in the devising of that strategy to, to deter China uh, in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean. I'm gonna stop here, thanks. Wonderful, thank you. Huang, I'm gonna throw it to you next. Um, thank you, Ian. Yeah, this is a question I think worth trillions of dollars, not even you know million, but trillions, if not more. I think, um, I'm not sure you agree from Hanoi's perspective um, with uh, LBG that it will be status quo on the, in the South China Sea. I think Vietnam would worry that under the third term of um, Xi Jinping, China will continue to advance its um, maritime interests, will continue on the mission of uh, militarization and advancing capabilities in the artificial outpost and, um, and have it a certain greater control or ability to do so. Um, so I think what already has been ongoing for a number of years will only continue and intensify. That's, um, and that includes um, the maritime militia that we've discussed as well. So I think there isn't that confidence um, from Vietnam uh, in particular, uh, but also a number of other claimants state that things will be calm or um, stable. But I think there is a point to a, a level of predictability. So we, we've known uh, Xi Jinping's rule uh, for two terms. We've heard many um, you know, policy and announcements, including the global uh, security initiatives. So that you know, carefully studying that there is a level of very clearly state objective of China, how it wants to uh, assert that uh, you know order in the region. So there are is level of predictability there, and um, you know optimists may want to believe that you know, he, uh, Xi Jinping's third term will not necessarily seek uh, unnecessary provocation or dangerous ones. Um, 
But I think there are also other beyond the maritime, I think for countries in Southeast Asia and mainland Southeast Asia in particular, there's also other worry uh, in Mekong um, as a second uh, frontier, not necessarily maritime and not necessarily receiving as much global uh, attention, including the legal ones, because you know doesn't have as many legal pro- uh, support and provisions like um, the maritime domain and not global interest in there, but it is uh, increasingly uh, a, a point of uh, concern and including, you know, um, potential plans or potential um, rumors that uh, China may have access to Cambodia's port uh, in realm, uh, which will really change um, the balance of power and, and shake the whole, uh, make, make the whole South, mainland Southeast Asia uh, worry. So it's not necessarily maritime, but it's not disconnected either. Thank you very much. Tara, last thought on the leadership <laughs> transition in Beijing. Oh, well, thank you for asking me last, uh, because I can now borrow the thoughts of Abhijit and Huang. But I mean, honestly, it's beyond my expertise. Um, but I can, I mean, you know, sort of from an, a lawyer's perspective or on a uh, external observer, I can definitely agree with what both Abhijit and Pang have said, um, either uh, the maintenance of status quo and uh, or a strengthening of, of positions uh, in relation to um, uh, various issues in the South China Sea. And I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And even with a new leadership, I don't think that would change. I think it's become so intertwined with um, Chinese nationalist rhetoric, it's very difficult to step down from that. Well, everybody, look, we're, we're out of time. I think we've given an indication of how lively in, and broad-ranging uh, and indeed authoritative the discussions that we had earlier on in the year are. And if anybody's interested in these issues, then please do uh, either keep up with, with, what, uh, with what Beck Stratting and the team and so on are doing at La Trobe Asia and what we're trying to do at Crystal Asia Institute as well as what our participants have been doing as well. Um, look, I'd just like to thank the three of you for the discussion this evening. It's been a pleasure talking to all three of you. I'd also like to thank, thank the team at La Trobe Asia, Diana, uh, Hetherick and uh, Kate Clayton uh, for managing this event this evening. Uh, and I'd like to thank you and the audience for your questions and also your participation and for listening in to us and taking an interest in what we've been doing here. And I will um, bid you all good night. Thank you very much. <laughs>